Hey, what's going on, listeners? This is Dr. Philip Fletcher. Do me a favor, go over to YouTube, put in my name, Philip D. Fletcher, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. We have a lot of great interviews coming up on the Humanity Matters weekly broadcast. My special that I call Humanity Matters one-on-one is I sit down with, you know, cool people. Talk about what they're doing and how their work is contributing to the flourishing of human beings. So go over to YouTube and subscribe. And now the Humanity Matters podcast. Welcome to the Humanity Matters podcast, where we discuss and reflect on faith and philosophy, nonprofit leadership and social issues. We want to engage ideas on what it means to be a free human being in the pursuit of human flourishing. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. And now, the Humanity Matters Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Humanity Matters Broadcast, and I am your host, Dr. Philip Fletcher. Today, we will have a Humanity Matters one-on-one discussion uh, with my guest, Rachel Ferguson. And as always, connect with me on my website, philipfletcher.org. That's Philip with two L's, philipfletcher.org. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. We are broadcasting live on Facebook as well as over on YouTube. Subscribe, put in my name, Philip Fletcher. You can see it, a lot of great video content. Uh, subscribe or appreciate any type of review. Hey, if you miss any part of this one-on-one discussion today, it will be uh, uploaded as well over on anchor.fm. And so wherever you get your podcast, anchor.fm, Spotify, Google, all that good stuff. Hey, subscribe, listen to the content, leave me a review. I would greatly appreciate it. Always looking for sponsors for the show. Helps uh, do some work, equipment, and all of that good stuff. You can make a uh, sponsorship. I'll even show a commercial for your business or nonprofit. Hit me up, pfletcher73 at gmail.com. And then finally, if you've got a question and you want to be in the mailbag, we're not doing the mailbag this week. I have an opportunity for you to interact live with our guests. But on any other time, Send an email to Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. Humanity Matters Podcast at gmail.com. And so uh, today we have got with us Rachel Ferguson. How's it going, Rachel? <laughs> going well. Hi. Good, good. So, Rachel Ferguson is a professor of managerial philosophy and director of the Liberty and Ethics Center in the Hammond Institute. Her research interests include Hume's classical liberalism, the philosophy of economics and Aristotelian virtue theory. She is a board member for the Freedom Center of Missouri and the Love the Lou. I love that. I love that. And serves on the advisory boards of Rethink 315 and Gateway to Flourishing. Ferguson teaches political philosophy, game theory and business ethics. She also facilitates the course on economic federalism that accompanies the Liberty and Ethics Center's Spring Conference. In addition, Rachel coordinates a collection of liberty-oriented faculty from mid-sized Midwestern universities, 
which aims to engage with constitutional law and economics at the faculty, undergraduate, and high school levels. Dr. Ferguson received her Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Linwood University and her PhD in Philosophy from St. Louis University. Hey, welcome, Rachel. How are you doing today? Good. Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Doing good. So tell us about yourself and your family. Well, I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I just... uh, cross the river every weekday to go to St. Charles where Lindenwood is. And uh, I've actually lived in St. Louis all my life, which is very uncommon for academics. We usually have to move away, but I didn't have to. And my husband is a a radio personality in mid-Missouri, Columbia and Jeff City. And I've got two boys, Asher and Solomon, 15 and 16 years old, and they are the joy of my life. Okay. That's awesome. How are y'all dealing with the weather out there? We're uh, doing okay. Yeah, my kids are actually homeschooled, so they don't need to go anywhere. Um, it doesn't change anything for them. And uh, Michael does his radio show remotely, and I do. I can do my classes remotely, so we're we're okay. Good deal. So tell us about your work and the purpose of the Hammond Institute. Let's share with us that. Yeah, so the Hammond Institute uh, for Free Enterprise uh, started in about 2013, and the idea was to just focus some uh, endowment dollars on, uh, you know, thinking about deeply about our constitutional tradition and particularly free markets and uh, okay. the the. But but I wanted to bring in you know my own little uh, flavor, you know, to the Institute, because there's several of us that make up the Institute. And I really want to emphasize human flourishing and Mm -hmm. the role of uh, moral virtue in a well-functioning society. And so uh, I've been able to do that, which has been wonderful. I've also been able to emphasize things like criminal justice reform and many of my passions that really overlap with with both of those. And and sometimes in ways that you might not think. So for instance, one time we had a conference on uh, re-entering citizens becoming entrepreneurs. Okay. And so it, it we blended our, our constitutional concerns with our with our market stuff. Okay. Um, and so we do anything in sort of that liberty realm. Okay. All right. So when you say free markets, can you describe to our audience what you're talking about? Well, um, I consider the I mean that's a that's a big question. I, I guess yeah. I would say I consider the probably the greatest uh, sort of central argument to come from Hayek, okay. F.A. Hayek, the economist who who makes the point that e- even if men were angels, right, even if we w- even if we all worked hard for the community, no matter yeah. what, and all of that, all of those problems about central planning were solved, we would never be able to solve what he calls the information problem or the knowledge problem. And that right. is that. Yeah, that the central planner just can't know, you know, how to efficiently allocate resources. And so when you want to have a, a flourishing economy, which is which is very highly connected to human flourishing and self-reported happiness and other things like that, you really do have to allow the evolutionary sort of the social evolution that naturally occurs when you have a solid rule of law, property rights, contract okay. rights. That are protected, and then it bubbles up, right? And it's this beautiful, organic, complex thing. Um, and so you want to have the right boundaries on it, you know, in terms of rights. But you don't want to always be in there trying to micromanage because, in fact, you actually can't do it without mm-hmm. creating weird, unintended consequences and stuff that you didn't mean to make happen. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. So that's that's the basic argument, and I think you can apply 
you know, you can apply that in a lot of different contexts. Okay. So you mentioned another word that Josh just love human flourishing. Yeah. Uh, like I talk about that all the time from your perspective. Can you talk about human flourishing as it relates to, you know, just the work that you do in terms of economics and virtue theory? Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. So human flourishing, I often think of the, the biblical term shalom. Mm. Um, we think of shalom as peace, you know, it translates as peace, but it actually means something more like wholeness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for something to be whole, to be complete, to be actualized, to, yes. you, that you have capacities that aren't laying dormant, they're being developed, right? And they're growing. And so uh, that's what I think of when I think of human flourishing. And, um, you know, I, you have to be very subtle about this because it's not as though just having wealth automatically means you're flourishing. That's not true, right? You can just be, you know, you can be languishing on a yacht somewhere and not developing anything. Um, so, so that can happen, but in general, that sort of crazy levels of wealth isn't what we're talking about, right? When we look at the whole globe, we're talking in the whole amazing, uh, elimination of abject Mm -hmm poverty, you know, over the last uh, couple of hundred years, and specifically the last 40 years, there's been a huge leap forward in terms of regular people who were in terrible, well, normal, really, for human history, but still terrible poverty, who now can go to, you know, they can send their kids to school, right? They can build, they can build wells for clean water, they can, all of the things that are going to make up human well-being, for them and their ability to develop past mere survival, right. And move into the, into the realm of thriving. Um, And so, you know, you want not only for people to be able to develop, but for them to do so in a healthy way. And that's where your virtue theory comes in. So -hmm. it's not just a matter of, Hey, let's make everybody rich. Right. But it's also a matter of, yeah, like as we get rich, (laughs) what's our goal, right. And our goal has to be, for me, I'm a Christian. So I think a lot in terms of love, you know, we need, we need the love that happens in families and then communities, and then just sort of the solidarity that happens in a political society. And, uh, and we want to feed into, you know, healthy human institutions. That's good. That's good. So what brought you, what cultivated your interest in economics and, and virtue theory? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? How did you arrive at where you're at today and these interests that you like to write and teach on? Huh, that's good. Okay, so <laughs> you make me go back and think about my origins, which is interesting. You know, my it's a, it, it does reflect my origins, actually, now okay. that I think of it, because my dad was an evangelical pastor okay. of a very diverse church. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was actually... I would say about a third black, a third uh, Gentile Christian and a third Jewish Christian. So okay. it was really an interesting mixture of people. Okay. And we were all Jesus. It was, a, it was the Jesus freaks. It was the hippies, right? I, and I, so I remember the, that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. The Jesus movement, getting baptized yeah. in the river, you know? Yes. 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 <laughs> so, so he was, but, but interestingly, he himself was sort of a Reagan conservative. Okay. So he was never, it was kind of an interesting mix, right? Because he was never he was never talking about anything like that at church, but at home, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, the problems with communism and, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and Reagan conservatism for, for, for our young listeners who may not know is totally different from Trump style populism. 
um, sure. you know, where Reagan, you know, he's loves immigration, you know, I'm not saying he was perfect on everything, but you know, mm-hmm. he, he wanted to disarm, you know, pull back on nuclear stuff. He, he handled Gorbachev very carefully, you know, and right. helped kind of move things in the direction for the, you know, for communism to, to end in the USSR. And so yeah. he was a true statesman, you know, and, and really incredibly clever and so forth. So anyway, so, so I grew up around that. I ended up becoming a libertarian, like a really extreme libertarian. Libertarian in college. Say it again. How extreme? I, you or, know, I, I I will have to admit to you, I probably went through an anarcho-capitalist phase. Okay. All right. You went way. Okay. <laughs> I mean, don't we all have to at some point? No. Yeah, at some point. Um, it's just like the, the kids on the left have to become, you know, aren't anarcho-syndicalists for a while. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I that softened over time. And and that and that has to do actually with my reading of David Hume. Okay. Part of the reason that that changed, which I can, I can talk more about, but I I really, today I would call myself a classical liberal. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like in a sense, the term libertarian has kind of gotten taken over by anarchists Mm -hmm. a little bit to an extent. And so Mm -hmm. it's just sort of, we just are against the government no matter what. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, uh, it doesn't leave any room for discussion about good government. Right. And, 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 you know, the genius of the constitution and things like that. Um, so I, I, I still am friends with many anarcho-capitalists, and I think it's interesting to think about the way that public goods could maybe be provided privately and things like that. But it is yeah. an ideal theory. You know, it's not something that we're going to do tomorrow. Right. And so, um, so that did kind of shift over time. And then my faith kind of broadened to include more of the whole sort of rich Christian tradition okay. uh, as well. So I got to know sort of the other denominations and, and things like that. And so, um, you know, it's been interesting to, uh, you know, to be, to be exposed to traditions like in the black church, you know, where you really yeah. don't necessarily have this, you know, caring about your soul versus caring about your, your body or your social circumstances as though those two things are opposed. Right. Why would they be opposed? Right. I mean, of course, right. Uh, God loves you, you know, your whole human person and, and we are bodies, you know, that's part of what it is to be human. And so, you know, we're not just floating brains or, or we're not just our souls. Um, yeah. And so all of that to say that, you know, over time, I, I feel like my positions became richer and more nuanced, uh, you know, one would hope. Right? Um, and so that's kind of how I got to where I am today. Okay. Um, now, if you want me to go back and explain the Hume thing. Yeah. So how did Hume pull you from anarcho-capitalism to being a classical liberal? Yeah. So first of all, I love the Scottish Enlightenment. I love okay. Adam Smith. I love David Hume. Mm-hmm. I think that their critique of the of the Cartesian Enlightenment is, is really spot on. Yeah. Um, and... I was really a Lockean, right? And so one way okay. to be an anarcho-capitalist is to think that property rights are somehow kind of a metaphysical extension of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can just sort of draw that chain all the way back to, you know, the, the very first, yeah. uh, you know, whittling of a spoon out of a branch mm, or right, whatever. Right. <laughs> and what Hume taught me is that uh, property rights don't actually work like that. Okay. And so property rights are... Uh, they're social in nature. Uh, I, I own something because I'm making a claim against others. So Robinson Crusoe on his island mm-hmm. doesn't own anything. He doesn't need to own anything, right? He's the only right. guy there. He's the only guy there, right? Right. And if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm on, or, or here on Earth, you know, if we think about things like, you know, 
the ocean or air. Yeah. We we don't divide those things into property because right. uh because they're abundant. Right. And so what I realize is that property rights are something that arise under certain conditions. Okay. The conditions of moderate scarcity. Mm-hmm. Right. So so it doesn't they don't arise when things are abundant, no matter how much I use them. So mm-hmm. Locke's idea of homesteading or use it's not exactly wrong, but it's, it's, it's just that it only applies when something is actually scarce. That's yeah. when we need to decide yeah. mine and mine. Yeah. Okay. And then the other one is limited benevolence. So, you know, in the family, for instance, we don't, we don't sell, buy and sell, you know, we, we share, right. We're little, right. I always tell my sons, I'm the communist dictator, you know, in this household. <laughs> I say the same thing. <laughs> That's the right. of the dictatorship. It is. I decide who produces what. Yeah. <laughs> how much and who gets it, right? Right. <laughs> and that's okay because there is a high level of altruism in the family, right? right? We all love each other dearly. Yeah. And you know, husband and wife come together and it's common property, and that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. And also because it's small. So right. the family, or even something as big as like a monastery, which is maybe a hundred people, usually no bigger than that. You can have communism in a sense, right? Not commun, not full, you know, communism in the sense of common property. No, I got you. Yeah. yeah, you can yeah. have common property because you have an extremely high level of altruism and discipline. Everyone's totally dedicated to the mission. And it's small enough that the central planner actually does know uh, who would be best at what and how much of everything they should produce and things like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the abbot can decide which, which monks should do what, right? Right. But, um, you know, but beyond that, that's where you run into problems. Yeah. And so, and so what, you know, so what Hume helped me understand is that, is that property is something that we recognize psychologically that belongs to that person because I have seen them, you know, with that property for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, and here's the kicker. If you go back in history, somebody stole something. Yeah. That's a hard truth right there. It definitely, you know, I mean, somebody stole something. Yeah, that's hard truth. Yeah. And so, you know, if we want to go the route of uh, everything has to be a a chain of just exchanges, forget it. You know, there is no way. All property rights currently are illegitimate. And do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I've thought on that. And that's 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 a tough uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. But you're right. The things that we have, the things that we have benefited from, if you will, um, are off of an injustice, if you will, happen. And inju- if you're looking back, an injustice happening to somebody else. And some, some point, at some yeah, point, yeah, it's it it's is. it's in there. Yeah. And so, what Hume is saying, it's the usefulness. Of And when he says utility, he doesn't mean he's not a utilitarian. So he's mm-hmm. not saying that in the Benthamite sense. Yeah. He's talking about the usefulness to every individual in the yeah. society. So it's the usefulness of recognizing and associating property with the people who have possessed it for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's why we embrace property rights. And, and, and of course, all the classic arguments from Aristotle and Aquinas about people working harder and wanting to hand it down to their children and mm-hmm. right taking better care and all of that sort yeah. of the classic defense of private property goes with that because that makes it more useful. Right. And so if we can go back and trace the injustice, then it should be righted. Mm-hmm. And you see that in cases like, you know, um, 
art that was stolen from Jews by Nazis. Yeah, that's correct. Right. And and we say, no, everybody go, even if the museum spent a lot of money on it, you know, we should, we should go back and return it because we can trace the injustice. But he says, you know, eventually you lose the ability to, to do properly so. do right. have to kind of move on. And the, the advantage to this view, besides the fact that I think it's true, okay, <laughs> is that we're admitting that property rights are not about people getting what they deserve in some cosmic sense. Mm-hmm. You know, who deserves Paris Hilton's wealth? Her or Mother Teresa? Well, look, my vote's going to be for Mother Teresa. Right, 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 right. right. But that's not the point. The right. point is, is that we will get into endless debates over who is virtuous and who deserves it and what counts and how you should distribute it. And, the, and it'll be never end and we'll be in constant war. Yeah. What we actually need is just have a settled rule for how property gets distributed. And you know what? One of the rewards we give to Mr. Hilton for making all those nice hotels is that he gets to give it to his ridiculous daughter and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Yeah. You know, and so you can say when people go, oh, it's, you know, people work really hard, but they don't have as much. You can say, yeah, that's true. Right. No one's saying that people have what they deserve cosmically mm-hmm. when it comes to property. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they just have what follows from the social rules we have chosen the yes. le- or the legal rules we have chosen. Legal rules. Yeah. And so we just bite the bullet on that one. We just yeah. say we, we do this because it's useful. That's good. That is good. So. The term classical liberalism, I think, I mean, if I was to probably ask my child about, you know, liberalism, they would have a completely different understanding of what that means. So when you say that um, you're a classical liberal, help an everyday individual understand what you're talking about. Yeah, so I have to do this in all my classes okay. <laughs> that I teach. And it's fun at Lindenwood because we have so many international students. Okay. And so I say to the international students, what does the word liberal mean in your country? And they say, it's totally different from how Americans use it. I was so confused when I got here because liberal mm-hmm. comes from mm-hmm. liber, meaning free, like free. liberty. Right. Right. And so the liberals in their countries are the free market people. (laughs) They're the ones that sound like our libertarians. Uh And so they are always so confused when they get here. And the truth is that I don't know the exact the exact way that the word changed over time. But I think it was only in like maybe the 70s or something. It was pretty late that we started using the word liberal in contrast with conservative to mean maybe slightly to the left. Right. Um, and now what's interesting is that we've, we now have the, the really intense progressives who almost go beyond liberals. You know, the old yeah. 60s and 70s liberals would have been very pro-free speech and ACLU yeah. types. Right. Right. And so, I, you know, it's, it's, I think of those people still as liberals in a certain sense. They're welfare liberals like John Rawls. Right. Uh, meaning that they want to say – we also base our view of proper government on freedom, the, the concept of freedom and even the freedom of the individual. Yeah. But we want that freedom to be meaningful yeah. by providing certain basics. Basics, that's correct. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to the classical liberals who have more of that negative view of freedom. Right. That I'm free when I'm not being interfered with mm-hmm. and uh, how I do in life will depend on the 
you know, civil societies that I'm a part of and things like yeah. that yeah. Uh, and not on government. But both welfare liberals and classical liberals are liberals in the sense that they base their idea of good government on the freedom of the individual. And so in philosophy, we use the term liberalism in that global way, the way that it's used internationally, which can get very confusing when we talk to regular people on the street. Because they've got the the political framework at, because that's what's beaten in all of our heads. Exactly. constant, Constant daily basis. Yeah. So in my own practice, I actually use the term progressive to okay. refer to leftists in general. I mean, unless they're full communists or something, which some mm-hmm. of them are, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but progressives are just, they just love central planning. So, yeah. uh, you know, so I, I use the term progressives and I try to actually avoid the term liberals because it gets very confusing in my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also think that a lot, a big part of this story was the fusionism, right. With conservatives and libertarians, um, you know, dealing with communism. Yeah. And so anyway, so it, part of it is just the way the American story kind of went that we started using words in slightly different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we are here with Rachel Ferguson and we are talking everything about classical liberalism and David Hume and the like. And when we come back from our short break, we're going to get into some more questions with her. So we'll be back in a moment. Imagine you have it all. A warm bed and a full fridge. No want, no worries, and no fear of tomorrow. Then disaster strikes. Your world is turned upside down. You are now broke, hungry, trying to survive. This is a story of people like me. Like me. Like me. Like me. Like me. And people like you. Now picture this, a community of compassion, a place of second chances. You can give a home to the homeless here in Conway, Arkansas. Learn how at www.hopevillagecoho.org. Thank you for making hope happen. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Dr. Philip Fletcher here, and we are back with Rachel Ferguson, who is the director of the Liberty and Ethics Center in the Hammond Institute. And Rachel, so coming out of Trump administration, uh, also in the context of things that have happened in terms of uh, racial unrest, Black Lives Matter, you have things happening in Portland and Seattle, just COVID, a whole bunch of different variables. It seems like they have converged to... Uh, create a real sense of, well, I I would say it has increased a polarization on just a whole lot of different levels. Um, You did a talk disagreeing agreeably. Um, I want us to understand how we can engage in discussions where there's going to be disagreements and how we can move forward. Because now we've got a a new administration and um, while there are things that were addressed or protested against in 2020, we still got COVID going on. um, There's still things that need to be addressed. But the question is, how do we do those things? How do we uh, sit at a table with differing points of view and 
and try to come up with a way to develop some solutions. So can you speak to that? Well, I think, you know, the first principle for me is the Imago Dei, the image of God. Um, and, you know, and that's the idea from my faith tradition that human mm -hmm. beings are infinitely precious, um, that they have inherent dignity and value because mm -hmm. they're made in the image of God and they're his creation and his children. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that I don't get to, um, I don't allow myself, to, let's say it's against my religion, to uh, yeah. to get on social media and call people idiots and morons and yeah. vent my spleen, you know, on people. Um, yeah. And so that's a really good discipline because, you know, I mean, I've deleted a lot of tweets, you know, <laughs> I thought, you idiot, you know, and then I go, oh, no, I'm not allowed to do that. <laughs> Yeah. So it's a great discipline. It pulls you back. And then you have to remember, this is a human person, mm -hmm. which is particularly hard to do in the age of the smartphone, where we are not flesh and blood with each other. I, I'm, I'm talking to people who are faceless, nameless words on a keyboard. Um, yeah. I'm not with them in a room. I don't have to answer to their friends for the way I treat them. There's no accountability, right? right? I'm really only accountable to myself and God in some sense, you know, yeah. in, in how I treat them. And so we have to be doubly intentional about remembering the humanity of every person that we deal with, no matter how off the, the off base, you know, we think that they may be. I mean, I've had three people in the last week, young people, tell me that they are actual communists. Okay. And and my heart stops. You know, to me, that's like somebody saying they're a Nazi. You know, I mean, I, like, I can't, I'm like thinking, do you know yeah. about the gulag? You know, I, right, 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 right. And right. and so it's you know, but I have to remember that this is a young person. Mm -hmm. They're coming from the perspective they're coming from, which is yeah. probably a lot of indoctrination about you know how capitalism is oppressive or something. Mm -hmm. And they're you know they're idealistic and they haven't thought it through, and so. So by, by reminding myself of their perspective, I'm able to treat them with grace and mercy. And, and I think you could say something just like that for someone who believes in QAnon, you know, yeah. and, and you can think, you know, this is the most ridiculous stuff I've ever heard in my life. But, and David French made a great point in an article he actually published today okay. about the fact that those weird ideas come through a community and mm. people are lonely. Yeah. And they're getting online and they're finding community, yeah. you know, or they're, or in their churches sometimes, you know, get, yeah. coming up with some of this weird stuff. Right. And so if you're going to have any effect on them, you also need to be relational with them mm. because you may be asking them to walk away from a community that has defined their social lives. Yeah. Uh, if you're asking them to reject certain ideas. And so really just the human side is so important. Now, of course, I want to say, you know, have good sources and always back up what you say yeah. with, you know, and all of that. But I think it's the human side that is getting lost. I think that you bring up, that's good to bring up that um, a lot of these, well, these ideas, you know, theories, conspiracy or not, they are coming from, they're not done in isolation um, they are coming from a group of people who, I mean, previous to last year, who get together, uh, probably more so online now, who get together, who discuss these things, you know, go back and forth with them. And 
it does build a shared sense of I'm part of something. I'm not alone in this. Um, and then it, it, it becomes now I'm thinking from a from, you know, from a religious standpoint, if I'm calling a person out of one community into another community, you know, what am I offering them? You know, what exactly. what is compelling about what I'm calling them to um, in distinction to what they already And being sympathetic to that, actually, uh, and what you're talking about, because they are a human being. And um, if we would all be honest, we, you know, whether you're a QAnon person or a, you know, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, you know, you voted for Trump or Biden or whomever, that's still you are a community of people uh, who have made an action or are announcing a particular belief or idea about life. Um, that has been developed with other people. And I think that's important. Yeah. That's a very good point to, to remember. And then I want to just throw in one other principle, yeah. which is just truth. And, mm. and this has been the anchor for me, you know, yeah. through all of this polarization and tribalism that we're seeing, yeah. which is that the ways that things have been bundled together politically may or may not be logical. That, you know, there, there may be no logical connection between one thing, and, you know, one value and another. And so the example I used in that talk I gave, I said, if I told you what I thought about abortion, mm -hmm. why would you think you knew what I thought about climate change? I mean, those are two totally different issues that are completely unrelated in terms of facts. Right. right. And yet we think we know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so if I know one, I know the other. Yeah. So and so so I've seen it happen is, you know, like your example, if I, you know, come out as being someone who is for a woman's right, you know, to 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 make a decision about her body. Right. And someone says, well, you know, you, you know, you're a baby killer. Right. And I said, yeah. well, I didn't say that. I just said I was about a woman's choice about her body. But then they say, well, then you just must believe this about climate change. You do you believe this about guns and then you believe yep. this about immigration. Well, whereas those two, those are have no relation to what I'm talking about right now. Uh, I may have a, I may actually agree with you on immigration, you know, yeah. depending on where you're coming from. And so and one uh, I mean, I will say this. I mean, one really nice thing about being, you know, basically libertarian or classical liberal throughout yeah. my life, my adult life has been that, you know, I'm used to taking positions that, you know, make me an exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. So if I'm around conservatives, there's going to be some things we agree on and there's going to be some things we disagree on. And if I'm around progressives, it's going to be the same way, except different yeah. things, you know. Yeah. And, and so what that means is that um, I have a certain tolerance for being the odd man out. But the truth is that that's very hard. That's very yeah. hard for people yeah. to be the odd man out, like we talked about with the community. You know, the yeah. sense of community. And it feels good. As a matter of fact, if you read the psychological literature, you actually get like a hit of dopamine <laughs> when mm. you feel like a part of a group, you know? Yeah. Okay. And so yeah. every time you like that tweet and every time you say you stupid idiot, you know, you're yeah. getting that hit, right? And, and yeah. that, you, you know, that, that lizard brain back in the back of your, <laughs> <laughs> the back of your skull is like, yes, I love this, you know? So it, it takes, once again, it's like a spiritual discipline. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's a kind of discipline to say, this doesn't feel good to be the one who's saying something that kind of goes against the grain, but I don't think it's true. I can't say something that's not true. And so going back to that concept of truth and saying, look, and I can say very gently and sincerely with people on social media or wherever, listen, I get where you're coming from and I get that this is controversial, but here's this thing that's just nagging at me that doesn't, it just doesn't sit right with me because, you know, there's this study that's been done or there's this community that doesn't agree. And so, um, I can make people curious. I don't have to slam them right. and hammer them into my view of things because that never works anyway. You don't right. insult people into agreeing with you. Right. Uh, but you can make them curious. Yeah. Right. And so you can say, you know, here's why that just doesn't seem to resonate with me for some reason. So, for instance, I'm, I'm very pro-educational freedom. Uh-huh. And I have a couple of friends who are teachers, you know, and just today they were like, oh, my gosh, you know, look at what's in the legislature, the Missouri legislature, and and they just want to end public education and they're in it for the money. And, you know, so I have not responded, but I'm thinking very carefully, Mm. how can I word this and say, you know, just so you guys know, just to add some nuance, you know, there's actually a huge movement within the within black and brown communities who feel that they have very much been marginalized by the public school system. Yes. And the vast majority of those parents are pro educational freedom. And we have the polls to prove it. And so, um, you know, let's just think a little more deeply about this. And even if you still disagree with me at the end of the day, at least we, uh, you know, we see that it's more more controversial then it's not as so straightforward yeah. as you might think. Right. That, that is correct. That is true. So um, you had another essay. You're not wrong. You're totalizing. Um, I love that title. Um, so you address both sides in America, looking at housing and markets was two things you address. Mm-hmm. So explain this concept of totalizing and how it's impacted our discussions, even on policy prescriptions. Yeah, this is actually like a lodestar of my philosophical life. So I'm really glad you brought it up. (laughs) And I actually got it from a Hume scholar named Don Livingston. Um, It's his explanation of Hume's critique of the Cartesian Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And and what he says is that, just to put it very, very simply, is that the tendency of the Enlightenment mind, the Enlightenment is wonderful in many ways, but it's, it's rationalist in a kind of narrow way. Mm. where it wants to say that calculative reason is the only thing that counts as reason, you know, mm-hmm. creativity mm-hmm. and imagination and association. Those are all Scottish enlightenment ideas. They're not, yeah, yeah. you know, and so what that means is that if you're going to sort of prove something, right. Or if you're going to give your reasons for thinking something is true, you have to start with some kind of undeniable first principle. Yeah. And then you've got to deduce everything from that, Yeah, which fails. Okay, yeah. that's that's why we ended up with postmodernism. Okay, this yeah. is a, an epistemic standard that doesn't work at all. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't lead to wisdom, which is why it's not good mm-hmm. philosophy, because mm-hmm. philosophy is the love of wisdom. Wisdom, right. Okay, right. so there yeah. must be other ways of knowing. Yeah. And deductive reasoning is great for geometry and, you know, and things like that, but it's yeah. not necessarily great for ethics. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so once you realize that though you see that the enlightenment mind can be totalizing in the sense that it tends to focus on one first principle and that becomes like a lens mm. through which you see the whole world and everything is transformed 
according to that lens. Okay. So if I think, for instance, that, um, you know, that, that uh, racism is, you know, the original sin of the United States, very, very much could be correct. Then I might start to see every single issue I come across as being explained in that way. Right. And so it becomes totalizing. And and my right. point is like, look, you've got really good points. It's just that you're overdoing it. <laughs> Instead of saying this is a really important explanation that we need to take into account along with a bunch of other ones. Right. We end up saying this is the one and only explanation. This is the only explanation, right. 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 And yeah. and we can do that in various ways. Um and so that that's how you get, you know, feminist glaciology or whatever where you're you know, you're you're trying to understand how to do, you know, how to understand glaciers from a feminist perspective. And it's like, you know, just because feminism has some good points doesn't mean that it affects the way you study glaciers. <laughs> right. right, right. I think it's it's kind of uh, I saw a uh, article, um, you know, because race is a other thing I like to study in um, out in North uh I don't want to get this wrong. Northern California, um, where someone was trying to explain that, you know, making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich was racist. Right. And I just said, <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, you know, this was given to, you know, elementary school kids. And I just I just wonder how what that what that lesson plan looked like and what was the history that they used to to explain you know, that the phenomenon of a great lunchtime sandwich, you know, was a example of, you know, systemic racism. Um, so, yeah, to be able to. Yeah, that's kind of where we're at today is uh, we're not nuanced in our thinking, not understanding, you know, you can't apply one thing to everything. Right. It can. It can add some inter- it can add some helpful perspective on the situation, uh, but to to lock yourself, I think, like in concrete shoes, and be like this is the only way for it to be explained. Um, and this is, and as such, this is going to whatever come out of that. I think you know it puts us in a very precarious situation. And then it becomes tribal again, because then um, if I don't share that view in this particular instance, we circle back around again, then, well, you're just this way. Right. And, and that's just not fair. Um, And I think it kind of, it, it depersonalizes an individual because you're not honoring their perspective and what they are bringing to the table in regards to this particular uh, situation. So, sorry, I got. Yeah, I mean, my- I I actually think that this is. Oh no, that's okay, and and yeah. I'm a little glitching, but I can hear most of what you're saying. Okay. Um, I hope I'm coming through okay. Yeah, I got. Um, you. I think this. Okay, good. I think this is actually one of the senses in which I really appreciate the conservative tradition. But by conservative here, I mean like reflective conservatism, like Russell Mm -hmm. Kirk Mm -hmm. or someone like that, Mm -hmm. who is anti-ideological. I mean, that's actually sort of the idea is that conservatism isn't an ideology. It's the Mm -hmm. rejection of ideology. It's the idea that that life that that your your sources of authority are multivariate in your life. 
And so it could be your, you know, your tradition in your town. It could be your mm -hmm. church tradition. It could mm -hmm. be your, your political tradition. It could mm -hmm. be the way that the economy is set up. All of these things are sources for the way that you live your life. And that's okay. Yes. And uh, where, you know, for instance, if you look at some of the more ideological feminists, what do they say? They say everything is politics, right? Everything is politics. It can't, politics can't just be one part of your life. It has to be everything. Mm -hmm. Well, I could kind of say, I mean, I could say that about theology. I could say that about philosophy. I can, you yeah. know, yeah. I could sort of say that. You know, but then in another sense, it's like, no, sometimes I have a private part of my life that isn't politics. Yeah. And that's okay too, right? I just want to live my life and take care of my family and right. so forth. And so that totalizing tendency has become, I think, just kind of a knee jerk thing mm -hmm. where it absolutely leads to tribalism because if I understand that the sources of authority in my life are multivariate, then I can take a look at somebody else and I can say, well, maybe I think they're overemphasizing something, but there may be a, some core of truth. There's a kernel right. in there right. that I can appreciate. Right. But if they're not adopting my lens, if I, if I'm looking through an ideological lens and they're not adopting my lens to hell with them. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's, that's why I see Trump style populism as being totally not conservative. Uh, because they're adopting that same sort of, um, and I don't mean people who just voted for Trump no, because I guess, they, yeah, yeah. you know, wanted his policies or his judges or something. I'm yeah. talking about the real diehards, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, it, because they're, you know, rejecting their family members over it and, mm. you know, to they're totalizing it. And I'm thinking that's not the conservative way. Mm. You know, the conservative way is to, is to is you know civility and 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 remaining yes. in conversation and and persuasion you know the power of of persuasion and and uh the power of civil society yeah right and so it's there's something very ideological i think about that style of populism yes 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 so as a classical liberal looking at our economic situation taking into context you know we've been battling a a pandemic um, speak to persons who are in, in poverty and in low income situations. Um, how does classical liberalism speak to them? What, what can they glean from uh, that approach in improving their economic situation? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'd say there's, I'll be twofold on yeah. this one. Um, so the first one is that uh, we really underestimate, and maybe even a lot of classical liberals do in terms of the on-the-ground gritty reality, mm. we really underestimate how much the bureaucracy is stopping poor people from breaking out of poverty. Mm. And I just talked to my friend Kathleen Mons in Georgia the other day. And she works at HBCU there. She works with okay. students who want to become entrepreneurs. Okay. And they hit a wall of bureaucracy, of regulation, of, you know, just all of the hoops you have to jump through and how often they change and how confusing they are. And, and, and it is so discouraging to them. And so, um, you know, one of the insights that has to do with things like healthy deregulation, things like... Um, 
lowering the number of uh, occupational licenses, you know, yeah. the ability to move around with your license, you know, like yeah. Arizona has done where you can, you can go there uh, with the license from other states. Okay. That's going to mean so much for working class people, people who are thinking, you know, I could start a lawn business. I could, you know, I could start a barbershop. I could do all these things, except you can't because there's some established business that has gone to the legislature and gotten something passed to stop you. Yeah. And that's why you can be arrested for barbering without a license <laughs> because the, the salon down the street doesn't want you to be in operation. Right. Right. Or the, you know, the, the fact that in Tennessee for uh, the Institute for justice has worked on this, but the fact that in Tennessee you had to have a high school diploma to be a barber. Why, why do you need a high school diploma to be a barber? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Cause when I was in high school, brothers were cutting hair in high school. That's right. <laughs> that's right. You learn by apprenticeship. Okay. Yeah. That's how it's yeah. always been done. Yeah. And you know, and of course we know the, the example in Missouri and, and in other States of the African hair braiding, you know, yeah. where, where the salons came in and said, well, you know, you need to have $20,000 cosmetology school. And these women are going, nothing in cosmetology school teaches me anything about African hair braiding, which right. I already know exactly. how to do. Exactly. Yes. And so, and those are just examples, but there's so many of these. I mean, I was just watching um, uh, Good Bones on HGTV the other day, mm -hmm. you know, where they knocked down houses in Indianapolis yeah. to pick them up. And, you know, they had some new code variation thing and they're like, what? You know, it's new. And they just passed it. And they said, it was, it was interesting to me to watch the mother and daughter explain our code book is this thick. It's so hard to keep track of. And it costs so much money to apply for these variances. They're complaining and they're upper middle class, successful businesswomen, right? They're not just trying to break in for the first time. Right. So that's just, I, I, I think a lot of, of progressives and maybe even more of us, just don't realize how stultifying that is mm. to people who are just trying. They have hard skills and they right. just want to monetize them like anyone right. else. Yes. And so that's really frustrating, number one. And number two, classical liberalism has a, has a really strong emphasis on civil society mm. and the idea that it's not just government and market. Right. It's not just what you do in commerce and what you do with the state. It's yeah. all the stuff in between. It's your church. It's your bowling league. It's your Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It's your, you know, it's your fraternal society. Right. It's yeah. it's all of these things. And we cannot believe I mean, we cannot realistically say that people from totally destabilized neighborhoods who are dealing with high crime, severe trauma, um, you know, missing parents, dr you know, drug addiction, et cetera, mm -hmm. that what they need to fix their problems is a check in the mail. Come on. Do you really believe that that is going to, to work? That's insane, right? There's no right. way that's going to work. Right. You People need to be surrounded with love and support by people who they can touch yeah. and that yeah. they can trust and that they can pray with at midnight, you know, when somebody gets murdered on the corner. Yeah. And, I, and I'm and i using these examples because I'm getting them from my friend Lucas at Love the Lou. I mean, these are his yeah. examples. Yeah. And, and so we've got to focus on neighborhood stabilization that is holistic. It's mm -hmm. shalom, right? Mm -hmm. It's flourishing. So it's, circle. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So instead yeah. of sending somebody out and saying, well, we have this program on Thursday where we'll teach you about financial responsibility. No, you have to walk with people through life. Because mm -hmm. what, what people in destabilized neighborhoods missed is the stuff that a lot of us take for granted. 
it's it's the networking it's the knowledge you got because you were just hanging around your parents while they paid bills or while they you know uh ran their business right or your uncle got you your first job at his at his car dealership or whatever because you're surrounded by people who have a high level of employment you're surrounded by people who have a high level of marriage you're surrounded by this and so you just kind of know it but if you're if you're someone who was not surrounded by those things then you need someone to walk with you through life and who cares about your block, the block you live on, the neighborhood you live in, you know, down to the street level, right? And so I'm a huge proponent of every, and this is the practical side. You know, you asked me, what's the big takeaway? from my work because, you know, I've got all these ideas and I love to talk about emergent order and property rights and all this stuff. And it's, it's important. But if you're just a Joe Schmo person out there listening to this and you're not a philosopher, (laughs) you can pick up your phone. (laughs) (laughs) You can pick up your phone right now. Here's a practical thing you can do. You can pick up your phone right now and you can call the charity. You can call your mission board at your church. You can call the charity you're involved with right? You can call a meeting. You can say, we all need to read When Helping Hurts by Brian Fickert. We need to read Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton. We need to look at the Christian Community Development Association, John Perkins. We need to learn this stuff and not just learn it. We need to do it. Okay. So the the, the Chalmers Center will help do that at your church, for instance, just as an example, they'll help you go from idea to to uh, execution because we've got to stop with the philanthropy that undermines dignity. Mm. Got to stop. It's, it's not helping. It's hurting. And we kind of know it, but we don't want to admit it because we've always done the Christmas shoe boxes. And so we don't want to stop. And it's a more, it takes way more effort to get to know a neighborhood and to start a Christmas store. Right. And invite people in the neighborhood to work there and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But you know what? A dad who walks into that store and you know what I'm talking about, Phil. I do. Yeah, I do. A dad who walks into that store and buys that discounted toy and he picks it yeah. and he pays for it yeah. and he wraps it and gives it to his child. Yeah. We have just honored his dignity as a father. I feel like I need to stand and applaud you for so much. <laughs> it is speaking to my heart. <laughs> I am I am yeah. on fire about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I am on fire about it and I want Christians to repent. I mean, I really do. I, I, I and, and non-Christians, you know, who, yeah. who want to do philanthropy right and who care about the poor. We yeah. have to repent of things and maybe it was ignorance and maybe it was laziness, whatever. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, stop. Stop yeah. and change your mind. Turn around. <laughs> yes. yes. You know, and there are these wise people. Lucas Rugley of Love the Lou is going to be doing a, a, a an event next week at Hammond Institute okay. that people can come to if they want and hear about it. And there are wise people who have walked this walk and they know how to do it. And we should just sit at their feet, mm. soak it up and mm. bring it to the neighborhoods that we can, that we can minister to. Yes. Yeah. When I, when I first got started my nonprofit, somebody gave me the book uh, when helping hurts and I read it and it dramatically undid everything that, I think most people are, you know, commonly understanding they're supposed to do. And the whole concept of uh, re- relief, development and restoration uh, was huge for me. And those distinctions um, just really how can we affirm the dignity uh, that's already residing in people uh, who are considered 
being in poverty, low income, and um, that they have something to bring to the table as well. And so that was huge uh, for me. And it, it, it radically shaped, you know, the way I approach nonprofit work and what I consult other people in doing. And it's huge. And, and the other thing it takes, it takes some humility to say, I can only bring so much to the table. I need your insight. I need your experiences um, as well so that we can do this together. And um, right. I talk about, yeah, maybe not, not being a member of the neighborhood, I don't know the solution. Exactly. And I can be helpful, but I need to hear what the neighbors want to do. Exactly. Yeah. And then I'll do my part, you do your part, and then um, mm-hmm. we can do this together. And, and that's one of the things I haven't changed. I don't, we don't do things for people, we do things with people. Um, that's it. Just that language just changes the whole perspective. And that was beautiful. You brought that up. So, in conclusion, um, so what are you currently working on? Uh, Hammond Institute? Yeah, so my main uh, project at the moment is my book. Um, so I'm co-authoring with Marcus Witcher, yep. who is a, a native Arkansan. Is that yep. how you say it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Arkansan. Um, I am co-authoring a book called Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Ooh, I can't wait to read this one. I am so excited. <laughs> and And the point, you know, I wrote the book I wanted to read, really. Yep. Um, because what I knew is that classical liberals actually have a ton of work that they've done on discrimination and race, mm-hmm. and but it's all just sort of spread out uh, because yeah. they don't tend to categorize things in those terms. They hadn't brought it all together into one place. And so I wanted to mm-hmm. just take up, it's really too um, ambitious because I kind of start with slavery. You know, I go all the way back okay. and uh, and I do a big, you know, kind of a big overview where okay. we look at some of the ways that a classical liberal uh, thinks about American history, particularly mm-hmm. with regard to the systemic oppression of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And they bring a really interesting um, perspective. You know, um, for instance, the, the debate over, you know, is slavery, um, is it uh, by nature connected to capitalism? Right. Because if it is, you know, that's that's no good for capitalism. Right. right and so we've right. got to explain actually that it's not. It's extremely right. inefficient. Right. Um, it makes some people rich, but it doesn't make it doesn't make the, the general area rich, right. et cetera. Right. So you get into those sorts of things. Yeah. And then as I go through, obviously, we get to, you know, all of the uh, Jim Crow exclusions from economic activity. Yeah. And I think people both on the left and the right are beginning to realize how much blacks were kept out of their ability right. to participate in the in the economy yeah and when they did do well they got attacked um yeah. you know in, in many cases like in Tulsa yeah right and, and literally had their their goods and and their persons just directly I mean it was domestic terrorism you know they right. were just directly attacked yeah and then at the end of the book obviously the drug war mass incarceration you know those sorts of issues right I uh, kind of go through historically and then at the end in my solutions chapter, I talk about things like neighborhood stabilization as well as criminal justice reform, but also yes. economic freedom, yes. you know, and that's the thing is that in a lot of, a lot of those people who focus on black oppression don't understand economic freedom. And so they end up missing a huge piece of the solution and yeah. they're always looking to the state and right. then the state always ends up doing stuff that's even more racist than the last thing they tried. Exactly. You know? and, <laughs> so, and- and a lot of history shows that some, yeah. a lot of times it was the state that 
<laughs> did things to black folks that oh yeah wasn't for our good yes yeah listen <laughs> the redlining was the federal housing administration yeah i mean yeah. they came in and drew the red lines and said right. well, you, you know you can't insure these people right and so uh people need to know that i mean an, a huge part of uh, eminent domain abuse mm -hmm. of african americans was the highway system the federal yeah. highway system coming through and being abused yeah. in order to keep people segregated etc yeah so one of my goals with the book is to help conservatives to talk intelligently about our history of racial oppression mm -hmm. in a way that because I can show them, look, this is, systemic oppression is real, you guys. It's it actually comes in the form of violating people's property and contract rights, which yeah. you as conservatives care about. Right. Right. And they're and their religious freedom and many things. Right. And that, that conservatives care about. And so instead of doing this tribal thing where if you if you think about racial oppression, you must be a leftist. Um, I want to that says, no, we can be extremely sensitive to our history of racial oppression in a way that does not buy into some crazy leftist ideology mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in any way. And we can bring solutions and, and a little bit, you know, uh, critique our progressive friends who uh, do give a lot of lip service to these issues, but often their solutions are very push button, very magical thinking. Right. And so we can say, you know, that's not going to work and you need to get in reality and think about what, what will really change things for yeah. people who are still suffering today. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the point of the book. And I'm, I'm very excited. The book is, is, finished and it's rough draft. Okay. So I'm, I'm editing and getting a publisher and all that kind of stuff. And okay. it'll be out in the fall. All right. Awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. How, how can people connect with you? Well, my, uh, my blog is rachelfergusononline.com. Okay. So you can check me out there. You can leave me messages there, but I'm also happy to be uh, contacted personally uh, at my email, rferguson at lindenwood.edu. I'm also on Twitter. I'm actually on Twitter as at Liberty Ethics. Okay. But if you look at my name, you'll find me. Um, do follow me on Twitter if you like what you've heard, because this is a lot of the stuff I think about and talk about on Twitter. And I'm on Facebook as well. All right, good deal. So finally, what is one thing you want people to know about the impact of your work? Um, one thing that I want people to know, I think the one takeaway I hope everybody has is to reject the tribalism. Just reject mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, just know that you can hold positions that don't fit one tribe or the other because it's because they're true. And that you can continue to seek the truth. You can change your mind. Um, and we can create a community among one another of people who are truth seekers mm. and who are willing to have uh, beautiful, kind uh, conversations. And we can respect one another and think deeply about things. I know that's what you do, Phil. So I know you're, you're in that community for sure. And, and so we can provide that community for one another so that yeah. those who are caught up in it have some place to go. Yeah. Um, come to us and, and, and we will uh, totally receive you in the journey that you're on and we'll help you think things through and we'll be kind. Yeah, that's beautiful. Rachel, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a very fruitful and engaging discussion. Um, I'm going to have you back again because I want to talk about this book. Wonderful. I'd love I'm, to. I'm excited about that book right there. I think that Thank is, you. that's a very necessary um, work that needs to be 
put forward to provide another perspective on uh, providing a road towards economic freedom, not just specifically regarding Black Americans, but I believe for, I think it'd be generalized to whoever, uh, regardless of ethnicity. So. Um, Absolutely. That's the oppression, point. the oppression of African Americans is just one example of the way yeah. that the state can get in the way. That's yeah, right. That's it. that's it. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you. This was fun, Phil. Yes. Hey, uh, for um, everybody, thank you for joining us for the Humanity Matters one on one on September. Excuse me, September. Geez, I'm jumping way ahead on uh, March 14th. Uh, at 5 p.m., we will be having Spike Cohen, an interview with a 20, former 2020 Libertarian vice presidential candidate, and have an opportunity to interact with him as we talk about libertarianism and the ABCs of that. And y'all remember to be loved, to be kind, to be generous. If remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible. Take care. God bless. Thank you for joining us of the Humanity Matters podcast. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. Like us on YouTube. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Remember to be loved, be kind, be generous. And if we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible.